Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway, and welcome to a brand new year, 2013, and we've got a whole bunch of podcasts for you this year, so please keep coming back. We've got number 48 today with Brian Frink, who comes to us from Minnesota. We talk at great length about his studio work and the way that it's evolved most recently, and of course about his other projects, Rural Contemporary American Artist and some of the other things that he has going on on Facebook, so please stay tuned for that. Just a reminder, if this is the first time you're checking out a Studio Break podcast, we've got plenty more at studiobreak.com. Each of the posts that we have provide links to the artist's websites as well as links to iTunes as well as a slideshow of their work, so please go ahead and check that out. Again, you can easily access the archives by looking over to the left sidebar and scrolling through the archive feature. Again, you can go month by month, or simply just add more blogs to the bottom of the entry, and you'll get more of them. So please go ahead and check that out. We've got a lot of great artists there. Once again, if you look on that page over to the left side, you'll see a hyperlink to my website, David Linway, if you're interested in knowing more about me or seeing my artwork. So please go ahead and check that out. Once again, we are in iTunes, so search for Studio Break in iTunes and subscribe there. Once again, thanks for leaving feedback. It's greatly appreciated, and I know that some of you have recently left feedback, so very, very appreciative. We hope that you continue to do that. Once again, you can find out more information about Studio Break by visiting our Facebook page, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, so please do all of those things. All right, here is your interview with Brian. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm happy to be joined in studio this morning with Brian Frink. How are you? I'm great. And uh, you're, you're talking to us out of Mankato, is that correct? That's right, David. Mankato, Minnesota. Excellent. And I believe you are a professor of painting and drawing up there, are you not? I am a professor in my 24th year at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Nice, yes. nice. And if I'm not mistaken, is it is it... Too much to talk about your your new responsibilities that you'll be starting in the fall. Is that something that I no I no? It's, uh, I was uh, my department department. I, the people that I work with in my department elected me the next chairperson of the department. So in the fall, I'll be taking over the reins from uh, Jim Johnson, who's been doing it for the last twelve years. So I have some pretty big feet, uh, shoes to fill. So yeah, excellent, excellent. That's exciting. I, people congratulate me about it, and I'm like, don't congratulate me. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a huge change for me because, um, you know, it's just a more administrative job. And so uh, I kind of lo- – you lose a lot of independence. One of the things that I value about teaching is just my – I'm kind of like the, the – the, my classes are my world. And so I have complete control, and that's the one of the pleasures of it. And I'm kind of giving a lot of that up. So it's with them, you know. But but I also appreciate the the chance to serve the university and serve our department and things like that. So sure, sure. Well, and we've been chatting for a while, but mm-hmm. we always kind of like to to make sure everyone knows a, a bit about our guests. So um, if you could talk a little bit about where you're from and uh, a little bit of your background, I know that there's a there's a lot of stuff to dig into. Well, uh, yeah, so I'll keep it kind of brief. I'm, uh, I grew up in Illinois uh, near Chicago, a little town called Plainfield. A little, back then it was a little rural farm town. Grew up there, um, went to undergraduate school at Illinois State University, normal. Um, studied with people like Rodney Carswell and Ken Holder and Harold Greger. And then uh, and I graduated from there in 1979. I moved to New York City at that point and lived in Williamsburg, settled in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, 
which at that time was quite a crazy, violent place. It wasn't the hipster neighborhood it is now. So I guess I, at that point in my life, I suppose I was an urban pioneer. I um, got a loft, a 2,000-square-foot loft that I moved into and set up a studio and married my high school sweetheart, Wilbur Neuschwander Frank, and she came to live with me, and we stayed there for five years. Our son was born there, Blake. And then in 1985, I started graduate school at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Graduated from there, I think it was 89, and then I got my job here at MSU then. That's the short version. The short, short version. That's good. It's under a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, and we talked a bit about, you know, landscape um, and and just kind of being raised in certain areas and, and how that might affect you know, the way that you see things, is that something that kind of shaped your, your perception of the world around you? Uh, oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, growing up in Illinois, not just the, the obviously the farm fields, because it was, a, like I said, a rural community, so there's farms everywhere. But my folks had a, uh, they still do, they have a cabin in northern Wisconsin. We had, used to run a campground up there when I was a kid. So I spent uh, most of my summers in the woods and on a lake hanging out and just, you know, being in nature. So, yeah, I think it totally informed my, my, my personal aesthetic and my idea about what I want to do with my artwork. Um, but then I also have a lot of urban experience. Like I said, moving, living in New York and um, constantly going to Chicago. And I fell in love with the idea of being an artist at the Art Institute, just looking at paintings. And so, um, you know, I really feel like I'm a product of, of a lot of different worlds, I suppose. Sure, sure. And was it something that you kind of always wanted to do when you, when you were younger growing up? Like, I, I, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Not, not a fireman. Nope. Well, for a while, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I kind of think being an astronaut and being a painter is about the same thing. So, um, yeah, no, I, I've always wanted to just be, you know, of course, it's taken different forms. I maybe wanted to be a, a cartoonist. Um, one year, I wanted to be a Playboy photographer. One year, I want, you know, I mean, so it, it's, it's, but it was always this kind of thing about making art, and I was always drawing and painting and making stuff. So, yeah. And. Was it something that, that you thought of as a, as a career kind of early on then in, in terms of like even your studies? And I'm, I'm guessing you took everything from, you know, ceramics to painting oh, to drawing yeah. in high school and stuff like that or no? Well, I, um, I wanted to be a painter. I'll tell you a quick little story. My parents took me to the Art Institute of Chicago uh, when I was probably seven years old. I mean, they would take us there every year because they like looking at art, too, and they, they still go there all the time. So I remember standing in front. The Art Institute has this gigantic Clifford Still painting. You probably are familiar with it. It's basically just there's some inflections in it, but it's basically a big black painting. Um, And it's just a great painting. It's one of my favorites. And I remember being this little kid standing in front of it just with this kind of a wonderment that something like that could exist, first of all. And I didn't like say, oh, that's not art. or I didn't didn't have any kind of judgment about it because I was just a kid. I was just like kind of in awe of this thing. And that's the feeling I try to get with my own work. You know, ever since then, that feeling of sort of being awestruck or wonderment or amazing, what is that thing uh, kind of feeling about it. And so that's kind of what made me want to, I just sat there or stood there and said, I want to do that. So that's and, what I've been trying to do. And, and how, how did you want to come into school then for, for, for art then? Um, well, you know, I think my parents were trying to channel it, um, that whole art thing. And so they wanted me to be an art educator to teach like high school or something because they didn't know what, you know, how, how like a painter would make a living. So they, I went to Illinois State because both my parents went there 
and they were both high school teachers and they thought I would be a high school, you know, art teacher. So I went there and majored in education for about a year and that was enough. I just, my teachers encouraged me just to go into, you know, studio art and become a painter. And so that's, that's really, I think I, I always wanted to be an artist, but I didn't know what one was really until, you know, you go to the museum and see all these things. And when you're a kid or even in high school, you don't know how that stuff gets there. And so the idea of being an artist was something I had to sort of be introduced to. Sure. Well, and, and we talked it a little while back about, you know, just your, your time after undergraduate mm-hmm. and, and you thought maybe you didn't want to go back to school, which leads me to believe that you must have had a really great experience there. What, what was the difference or what was the experience like in terms of kind of setting or changing really all of the things that you maybe thought about art, you know, yeah, and, and Illinois setting, State, setting it off into a new direction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, you know, Illinois State was this incredible school, and I at the time, and I think it still is a great school. But we had a, a very, very, as you know, a very um, active visiting artist program, and I was in that every semester. So I met all these artists from the east and west coast, kind of, con- and hung out with them. Um, and the, the professors I had were active artists. They were people showing. They still show all the time, and they're you know really gr- great painters, and they uh, you know never sat around talking about. You know, the whole idea of like teaching art, like going on getting my MFA to teach was never introduced. It was all about kind of this art as a real world activity. Like this is meaningful. This has purpose. This is um, something you can actually do. And, you know, that uh, to me was a really great lesson. So I had no idea. I just didn't want to go back to, I didn't want to teach art. I mean, I kind of, maybe I wanted to do what they did. They're like teaching me. And I thought, well, this would be cool to be able to do with my own students. But I didn't think of it as a, I felt like I had to go out and sort of prove myself first before I could, could do that. So that's why I moved to New York. Sure. And, and what, what kind of work were you making when you were an undergrad? I was, I ended up making my BFA, basically, um, I, I was working on, um, plywood paintings that I would cut. Uh, so they were shaped paintings. I was looking at artists like Elizabeth Murray, her very early work. Uh, she hadn't done the real eccentric, uh, shaped stuff, but her, her paintings, just kind of these very simple shapes. Uh, and of course, Frank Stella was a huge influence. So I was doing these, um, ply, I would just get a piece of plywood and start, uh, painting on it, paint it a certain color, and then cut it with a little saw, and then paint some more and cut it, and sort of create these plywood collages or constructions that were both painted and cut. So what was interesting to me at the time was, um, and I studied with Ron Jackson as well, and he was a big influence, but at the time I was just intrigued by the idea that not only could I say paint something orange, I could also paint it orange, and if I didn't like a certain spot, I didn't have to cover it up, I could just cut it out. And so that extra sort of uh, layer of um, activity was interesting to me. So. Sure, sure. And so what, what was it that, that, that made you pick up and just go New York, packing a bag, just, just going to get out there? Well, it just seemed to be um, there was other students that had moved there. A good friend of mine, Rita um, Finnegan, uh, got into the Max Beckman program at the Brooklyn Museum. And so I was able, so that she had an apartment there and, um, she still lives there actually her and her husband, Larry, and they're both ISU alums, but they, uh, lived, she, she was living there. And so I had a place to crash for a while until I found my own place. It just seemed like the thing to do. It seemed like an adventure. Um, it seemed like, uh, I mean, New York was just, it's so different nowadays. It was, I, you know, back then a person could still walk into Sonnabend or Castelli or, or, um, 
um, Paula Cooper and actually talk to those people. You know, you can, now it's, it's, it's much more inaccessible. So um, back then it was still kind of small. Uh, so, so it just seemed like the place to go. And what, I mean, obviously, you know, growing up in Plainfield and being not too far from it right now, I know that it's a very exciting place, but, um, <laughs> yeah. what, what were some of the other, I mean, I imagine it's a big cultural shock too, that this kind of, and, and you talked about, you know, going to Chicago and kind of, you know, being involved in going to the cities before. Was it, was it a big shock to you when you, when you went out there? Absolutely. It was terrifying. Um, not only did it. Did it, was it a shot? I mean, consider the neighborhood I eventually moved into, which was just a few months. I was I found an ad in the Village Voice for a loft space to rent, and my loft was right in a fantastic old. Now it's wonderful buildings worth a fortune, but um, I, I got this two thousand square foot loft in the middle of Williamsburg, and Williamsburg at the time was an incredibly violent neighborhood. There was people getting shot or stabbed or mugged, or you know, it was just like this crazy wild neighborhood. Nothing like it is now. And so, yeah, it was terrifying. But I had 2,000 square feet that I was paying, I don't know, 150 bucks for. And that was it. No utilities, no anything, you know. I mean, it didn't have heat, but um, it was a great deal. And so um, I could, you know, had studio space, and it was awesome. So, yeah. And during that time, I mean, obviously, you're probably, uh, you know, going to see artwork and being involved yeah. in all sorts Openings, of stuff. Yeah. the whole thing, yeah. Yep. Hung, hanging out in bars, um, you know, just meeting people and, yeah. And, and you were making work throughout all this time. What, what Was there any kind of shift or any kind of different interests? Or did you get homesick and start painting, uh, you know? No. <laughs> I never got homesick. <laughs> Although, you know, the, it's kind of a funny time period because, you know, this is, of course, before, long. this was 1980. So it was long before cell phones and um, long before and long before email and long before any of this stuff, you know, connectivity stuff. But um, I can remember I, my, I called my parents maybe. Uh, I didn't have a telephone, and I called them from a payphone like a month after I had moved there. And there was dogs barking in the background. There was literally there was gunshots. It was I think they were just completely freaked out about you know, me calling just, just to say I'm okay because it was the payphone out in the street. So it was a very, so, uh, but to your question, the, my shift in my work, um, it took a couple of years, but I started to, you know, I of course went to openings, went to museums. Um, the artists like Julian Schnabel and David Solly were becoming very big back then. So I would go to their shows and their openings. And, you know, I saw those neo-expressionists right when they were shown for the first time in New York. And um, so I started the shift that happened, I quit doing the shaped plywood things and shifted back to rectangles and squares. So a more traditional format. And what, um, what I sort of, my insight at that point was in looking at artists like uh, Schnabel and Sally, they, I felt their work, they were using the, that format, the square, the rectangle as a historical statement, not something that had to do with any kind of um, um modernist idea of, of progression of form so that, so that the stretched canvas become, became to me just this, this decision I made, not an arbitrary one, but a very conscious one that was rooted in art history, you know, versus just the progression of form. I mean, it's still a formal progression, but it had a different sort of, I mean, it really was a kind of a postmodernist idea. You know, the square canvas is a, is a statement itself. Does that make sense? Kind of? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And so, so you kind of were proceeding along with these works, I'm guessing, like getting some shows and, and things like that. No, or... I never had any shows there because I, um, I was only there five years, and I just was making my work. I, um, 
I made a lot of work, and all the, all the work that I did there is what I eventually used to get into graduate school. Um, but I didn't have any shows. No, no, I didn't. I had I had um, studio visit from the new museum about probably six months before I moved out of there. But um, I didn't really, you know, I was I was really young. I moved there when I was I think twenty two or something, and I didn't feel. I just didn't feel like. Well, I mean, if somebody would have said, do you want a show? Sure, I would have said, yeah. But um, I just didn't um, want to pursue it. I did take slides around like a lot of people, you know, to the to the, to the the different places, um, like at those galleries I mentioned and stuff. And I went to the drawing center a few times, had appointments with them. So I tried a little bit. Mostly I was just trying to figure out what the hell I was doing as a painter. I mean, that was my primary concern. Well, and it, it seems at that age it's uh, a good trying to figure out what the hell you're doing age. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's kind of, you know, I mean, I suppose if I was more, and I've never been very much of a careerist, you know, in terms of, um, and I, of, and it's probably my big, I mean, it's a lot of our big problem. You know, I, I'd rather just be in the studio making my work than, than hustling it, but, um, you know, oh, well. Right, right. <laughs> well, and so what, what brought you back then to, to Wisconsin then or, or to, to pursue your MFA? I was, um, I was, when I was in New York for money, I was an electrician. So I had, I was working for a guy, um, Walter Thompson, who was the chair at Bradley for university in Illinois. And he moved out to New York, maybe it was 83 or 84. And I was doing an electrical job for him. And I, my wife and I just had our first kid, Blake. And, um, I was just kind of ruminating with him about, you know, I, I kind of feel like leaving the city again at Williamsburg at the time wasn't a real good place to raise a kid. And so, um, he just said, well, why don't you go to graduate school? And it had never occurred to me to go to graduate school at that point, you know, it's like, well, okay. And seemed to make sense. And we had been prior to that, we'd been sort of discussing where to move. Right. And so we saw, uh, Madison, uh, Wisconsin Trails magazine had a story about Madison in it, Madison, Wisconsin. And so we had decided to, that's where we want to live based on this magazine article. We'd never been there before. Um, we just liked how it looked. And so Wilbur and I had decided to move there. When, when Walter talked to me, he said, you should apply at Madison. They have a really good program. And I was like, okay. And so I ended up applying there like two months past the deadline, um, got in, and that's, that's the only school I applied to. So that's where I got my MFA. <laughs> Did you have a lot of conversations about, you know, studio practice and, you know, painting and all this other stuff when you were in New York? Or was it something that, I don't know, kind of changed than going back to school? Oh, in New York, nobody talks about art. We just talk about real estate. So, you know, you don't, there's no real um, conversation about, like, your artwork, really. I never, I mean, I was in a building with tons of artists. I mean, we were all work, you know, artists. And, um, you know, I... Uh, we were all kind of young, just kind of struggling. So we we sometimes would talk about art, but it wasn't like the intense uh, sort of thing that happened when you're in undergraduate or grad school. So when I went back to grad school, yeah, it was good to kind of get you know talk about. But I had the same sort of, uh, I guess, antipathy to um, school that I had in undergrad. I was there, but I was kind of like, oh, God, this sucks, because it seemed like people were were you know all kind of living this weird fantasy, and it, they just didn't seem to have grasp of what you know being an artist out in the world was about so right right and so did the work change again um yeah through a lot of changes um in grad school and i think the biggest change was i i shifted my process where instead of using oil paint and my big breakthrough at that time was to start using encaustic 
So I, I found some wax in the studio. I was just kind of going through. It was a couple years into the program, and I um, was just really frustrated with things. And um, I found this wax and some paint, or I had some paint, but wax. And I had heard about encaustic painting before, so I just melted it and sort of and dumped it on a thing. And it was like kind of boom, and I was off to the races. So I started, I uh, spent about the next, I guess, 15 or so years doing um, large-scale encaustic paintings. So that, yeah. And that would be something that would be representative to the to you know, like years of working and that, and that method. Cause I, th- I think one of the other things I want to get at is too, like how, how important is that idea of process then you work? Yeah. Process in the sense that, you know, the, the, it was all about how the, the, the sort of way I made the paintings had everything to do with what they ended up looking like or, or the content, you know, there's a strong relationship between the, the meaning of the painting, the discovery of the painting and the way I was making it. So yeah, I think, I think, um, process is really important. I think, I, oddly enough, I think it's kind of less important for me now with the shift towards more, uh, you know, rec- imagery. Um, and I, I still think I, for a long time I was working under this sort of notion that, that you could still discover things through process or you can make something um, new through process. Uh, Elizabeth Murray has a famous quote about Cezanne where she says that, I mean, you've probably heard this, but she says Cezanne, uh, she, she said he really invented with paint and that's something she admired, how he invented with paint. And I think that makes sense with Cezanne. I mean, it's like he's taking paint and he's making something new with it. I just don't think he can do that anymore, like in that same sense. I just don't, I think it's been sort of wrung out. And I know, and I'm not making an argument for the death of painting, not at all. In fact, I think I'm making an argument for the continued life of painting. But um, I don't feel like I need to, uh, as, an, as a painter anymore, I don't feel like I need to um, be original with the way I use the paint, if that makes sense. Right, right. You talk a little bit about how, how you wind up working through these, because it seems like, again, that, that mode of kind of balancing out representation and abstraction is something that, would be pretty important. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think from my entire um, painting life and even, you know, I'll go back to that story about looking at the Clifford still painting. This was back when the um, uh, art Institute had their, all their modern stuff down in the basement. They had these galleries down in the basement. And so they had the Clifford still on one wall and right, you know, kind of around the corner was the de Kooning painting. And then right across from that was the Philip Perlstein painting which he probably had just painted. So, I mean, there was these, like, like, you know, as a little kid looking at these things, I, it was obvious to me if you go upstairs, well, the Impressionists all kind of look the same. If you go further up, you know, the, the Baroque all kind of looks the same. And But downstairs, there's this, like, really weird stuff where there's this guy doing, you know, nudes, naked people, and then somebody else just doing big black things. And so the kind of... Um, uh, that was the kind of template for me as as a as a thinker about art. Like I could I could pursue either in a sense. You know, I mean, it was all wide open. But I think for a long time I felt like I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't. Um, I had to somehow unify these things into a single object, and and so um, that that tension between those two desires, I think, created a um, a kind of um, a statement in itself, maybe. But I, a couple of years ago, I just gave that up. I decided that that was no longer relevant um, for me and for painting in general. And, of course, there's artists like um, um, Gerhard Richter, I think, who's a really good example of an artist that kind of works in these different modes. And my insight as a painter, I think, at least for me now, what I'm thinking about, I think in terms of genre. So I think in terms of the portrait genre, landscape genre, I think in terms of um, the idea of sentimentality is important to me. 
uh, sentimentality is something that a serious painter shouldn't be dealing with, but I find that interesting. You know why? It seems like kind of forbidden territory. So my large uh, portraits of, of pets are really rooted in kind of a, a, a desire to, to represent something sentimental. The idea of empathy is important to me, making work that empathizes with, with, um, with the audience or with, with you know, whoever's looking at, at it uh, is important to me as well. Right. Interesting. So how do you currently have it set up between these different bodies of work in your studio right now? Well, it's, I think it's, um, it's mysterious and it's awkward to me. You know, it's half the time I'm, I don't, I, half the time I don't know what I'm doing in a way. It's, it's, um, so I have, um, work that I call experiential, which is based on observation. Um, I just finished that residency out in Maine for, for, um, a month, the month of September I was on and I, uh, at the Helicker Lahoten Foundation, uh, which is a great residency for, if y'all, you know, consider applying for it cause it's free and, I had this wonderful studio right on a tidal pool, and I just pretty much for the whole month sat there painting what I saw out the window. So it was totally observation-based. Um, so I have that side of things, and I call that experiential. So I'm experiencing the world through my senses and trying to kind of represent that in some way through my painting. Uh, but then there's, a, there's kind of a more of a, a conceptual side of things, where, and these tend to be, photo, they, for the most part, they're photo-based work. So that's my large pet paintings. Um, some landscape things I've been working on that are based on photography. Um, I just got a grant to go to Paris I'm, or France. I'm going to be um, photographing Black Madonnas for a series of paintings about the Black Madonnas. So, you know, in a, in a odd way, I've kind of separated these two uh, my work into these different categories, I guess. Where before um, I was trying to combine all these different ways of thinking, you know, uh, into a single that idea again of unity seemed to be the overriding concern, like unifying or putting these things together into a single statement. That tension was the thing that was sort of interesting to me, I guess. But um, for some reason, I decided that was no longer interesting, so I separated those things out. So perhaps having the work in proximity is the tension. So that tension isn't necessarily relegated to a single work. It's now, you know, in, the, in, in terms of relationship uh, works have to each other. So then how do you decide what's going to be in a, a new body of work or a new series that you're going to be starting? Some of it has to do with like, I think a lot of it has to do with, the, with, with things like Facebook and the internet and the kind of um, uh, glut of, you know, it's a cliche, but the glut of information and visual information that we get, you know, kind of, um, it seems to make sense to almost with my work parallel that idea or something, you know, where my work um, isn't, it's about these different sort of um, streams of information or something. I don't know. Which might naturally change then if you go and do a residency. I, I, well, I went to the residency with the goal of, um, first of all, working on watercolor, just focusing on that in terms of my medium. And then um, I, was, I decided I was going to go out there and paint rocks, water, and clouds. And so I was, I was just going to focus on those individual subjects with the hope that, you know, maybe a landscape would come out of that. You know, I wasn't thinking I'm going to paint a landscape. I'm just going to paint these individual things. And so I kind of floated around for a while when I was out there. And at one point, look, I mean, not literally, but, um, you know, in my mind and kind of wandering around, I did a few landscapes just on location and everything because it's a beautiful landscape. But then at one point, I think it was the last week of my residency, I started, I literally, and I didn't even know I did this, but I had this, like I said, a gorgeous studio with this huge picture window. And I literally sat down to work one day and rotated my working thing away from the window and, and my back 
you know, I put my back to the view and start doing these, these water paintings that are relatively abstract. But, and so they're, you know, I developed a motif or a way of interpreting the water in this manner that has a kind of very, it's very designy, I guess, or has a design component. That's this, I mean, they, I became more of a, they became more, um, rather than trying to literally interpret the water, I started to express the water's nature, you know, through these things. Sure. Well, it, it seems interesting to me too, because you, you know, obviously spent like a long time developing a, a visual language, you know, the way that you're moving paint around or the kind of shapes that you're making or having, you know, thin or, or kind of transparent layers versus, you know, painting that's really built up and, and thick and all that. So is there any kind of reference to that kind of language that you created through painting or that history that you created all those years? No, I don't think that way anymore. I mean, I would say that, that that's how I used to work for a long, long time, like much more impulsively, where now I set out to sort of, I think my work exists within a certain kind of, each thing I do exists within a certain framework that I decide prior, you know? So it's like I'm going to do these memory, of, I've been calling them memory of water paintings, and I, I just set out to do one. And of course, each one has its own sort of variation and stuff and there's a lot of formal stuff i try to do with them but they're pretty much they don't change a whole lot and and my pet portraits are pretty much i'm going to paint this the image of this person's pet and you know um and there's still a lot of things i do but uh within the painting that's interesting process stuff that i'm learning about as i work on them but um i pretty much set out to do the painting i set out to do they don't change Sure. Uh, but what the the variable in all this, though, I think, is the experience I'm connecting with through the work. So, uh, like the pet paintings. Oh, how can I put it? I think, I think I discover something in the image as I work on it that I didn't see before, and that's what's interesting about it. If that makes any sense, maybe sure. not. But well, you you talked about it too as as it being uh, something that's like almost sentimental. Um, yeah. You know, and certainly, you know, the, with the way that you're sourcing them, I, where are you sourcing them from? I have a Facebook group group called I Love Your Cat, I Love Your Dog. And on that Facebook group, and, you know, any of your listeners are more than welcome to join it and put their photograph of their pet on the, on the, on the wall there because I may end up doing a painting of it. Um, what I do is I have this basically an archive of incredible photographs of people's dogs and cats. And what's interesting to me about that is... Um, Rather than shoot my own photograph of a dog or a cat, I think a photograph that somebody takes of their pet is is sort of indicative or has some kind of quality that uh, is descriptive of their relationship with the pet. It becomes like kind of their own self-portrait. And so there's a, I think there's a greater sense of empathy with the, with the portrait. Not all of them, of course. I have to kind of sift through them and, and find ones I really respond to for formal reasons. But um, I think taking me out of the picture, so to speak, is a real important thing. So I'm doing these paintings of somebody else's photograph of their own pet, and it's descriptive of their relationship with their pet. And so for the pet portraits, I think that that kind of um, detachment I have is really an important statement. It's almost like it's not my painting or something. I don't know if that makes sense, but that kind of idea of detachment. See, I, I think... So many artists, and this is sort of a challenging thing, I think, for a lot of people to hear, but I think um, so many artists are, are so hung up on this idea of, um, of uniqueness and even authenticity and originality that, you know, art and especially abstract art is kind of descended into decorative territory where it's just kind of nice decoration. And the formal impetus for making abstraction 
that we kind of inherited from the 20th century, right, is, is, as I was talking about before, is no longer applicable. It doesn't make sense to do that anymore. Um, but nobody else, nobody knows what to do. It turns, so again, again, I think a lot of abstraction is just um, decoration. So is that process of working through a piece something that's still very important to you, or is that something that's changed then, or how important is that? It is, but I still think the more important thing is the is the communication, you know, the, the relationship that the work um, establishes with the viewer. And I think part of the, I think part of the, um, and I always kind of call it the I'm the artist, fuck you sort of dilemma. You know, I think, I think for a lot of, for a lot of uh, artists, that's, it's that whole idea of my, it's my vision. And so that gives it priority. And I just disagree with that. And so I think like one of the things I try to do with my pet paintings is kind of, um, like I said, detach myself from them. I mean, I'm still the maker and it's still my hand and all that, but it's not, um, um, I, I, I think it's a more important statement to make. Well, I keep thinking of the world word empathy. I think there's the, 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 the need for empathy is really important in, in terms of the, the artistic uh, statement you're trying to make, a statement you're trying to make empathy with your audience. And I'm not talking about just giving them what they want. Um, it's not like a t- Thomas Kincaid sort of thing. Um, it's, it has to do, I think, with just uh, a simple sort of empathetic relationship between your, your, your audience and the stuff you make. And it's not about dominating your audience with your sort of creative genius or your innovation or whatever. Well, when I see this work, one of the things that I start to wonder is how do you develop the backgrounds for them? Because they kind of remind me of some of the, the abstract paintings that you were doing before. So is that something that, that kind of relates or what's the process like there? I just kind of basically um, work off the photograph, the image. And, you know, I, a lot of times I'll change the background a little bit, um, either usually de-emphasize something or, or leave something out, but I usually go with whatever kind of a, like a different kind of color, uh, like a color value gradation or whatever's, you know, in the background, I'll just kind of incorporate in some way. But if, like I said, I make changes in it to emphasize the, the image. Sure. And, and so some of the photographs, you know, and, and that's all part of looking for the right photo. Um, you know, the, some of the photos are, uh, you know, they'll have a really interesting background and that will attract me to it for, you know, so it's, it's all that kind of stuff. But see, that's all part of the image. The person who takes the image, their orientation to their pet, even their angle, how close they are, how low they shoot the photograph, all is descriptive of, of their relationship with that animal. And so those are all the kind of things that are part of the final um, painting. And in a way, if you think about it, I mean, if you think about the idea of the point of view of the artist or the, or the, the artist, you know, historically, one of the things you do as a painter, you place your viewer in your position. Right. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a basic idea of placing the viewer within your framework, like your point of view is expressed in your painting. That can take all kinds of variations from, you know, two point perspective or single point perspective to something like a, like a cubist painting where it's a multiple perspective. But it's the it's the artist placing the viewer within their framework, within their point of view. And so with these pet paintings, what's kind of interesting to me is that I'm sort of incorporating somebody's else, somebody else's point of view within the painting, um, the person who takes the photograph. And it kind of becomes arbitrary and anonymous in a way because I'm, you know, sourcing the image off of Facebook and things like that. So, Well, and it's interesting because you normally, you know, go into a gallery and you're trying to get a uh into the artist's head or try to see it from their perspective maybe or experience it. And so this kind of brings up an interesting idea about all of that. 
Well, part of it for me has to do with the idea of, um, to me, the, the thing, like what we're doing right here on Skype and everything, I think, or what we do on social media um, is all about, um, it's, it's a new space. It's a new perspective on the world, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's just my way of representing it in my painting is to u- utilize it in some way. Um, and it's all intuitive on my part. I'm just kind of like going, okay, how can I? And, you know, one of the, and, and I just sort of stumbled along with it because when I started doing these pet paintings, I started, I just at first thought, well, I'll just randomly look for, for pictures of dogs on the web. And they're all stupid. You know, if you just Google dogs, pictures of dogs are usually pretty, you know, they're dogs and, ironic sort of pictures they're silly or whatever and one of the important things for me about the pet portraits is that they're not ironic i don't see this as ironic work um i i see them as very sincere and honest paintings of these people's pets and so that's why i started the facebook group to to get people to um submit photos that they valued you know they had this it wasn't just about a joke and that's the other thing that these pet portraits do. I mean, first of all, they're very big. So they're, you know, six or seven feet. Like there's one right there you can see. Right. right. They're good-sized paintings. And I think for a lot of art people, you know, art people, I put that in air quotes, people that are familiar with art, they struggle with trying to find irony in them. And so they kind of place, uh, a, place people of our own tribe, so to speak, in this funny position of, of struggling with irony like they they want irony but they don't want it they can't find it they're they're trying to see it so there's this interesting tension between you know the the sort of um the honest nature of the paintings at least that's what i'm trying to portray and and the viewers uh the typical you know art viewers struggle for ironic detachment and i think that's an interesting tension right right well it's interesting because it makes me wonder how anyone really knows you know, where a particular artist is, is coming from or, or what their intent is. Right, right. Well, I think with my pet paintings, all I'm trying to say with them is I love you. <laughs> you know, to me, that's like kind of what they're about. They're just about this kind of, I mean, I can BS about them like all day, but there's just this desire for love with them, you know, that I think is really an important thing. And, um, you know, when it all gets down to it, that's what, that's what's, that's what I think they're about. Right. Well, and, and so what kind of reactions then do you wind up getting um, from, from these? <laughs> well, initially when I started doing these, um, and bear in mind, um, well, I, I'll just tell you the story real quick about how I, how I came about to do these. My, um, this was a couple, maybe three years ago now, just about three years ago in February. My daughter um, asked me to do a painting of her father-in-law's dog who had just died, like a small painting and for Christmas. And I said, okay, I didn't want to do it, but I just do it. So I, I, you know, we're like a week before Christmas, I got my, the image traced it onto the board, got a little board and painted the thing. And it was like, I did this painting and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Not the painting, but just the feeling I had with it. I was like suddenly like kind of light and it just, uh, seemed so interesting to me and I liked what I ended up doing. You know, I was like, well, this is cool. And then I started thinking, well, I could make some money doing this. I just do commission business. And then I thought I'd take, you know, then I thought, well, everybody's all my professional friends and art friends are going to think he's insane if I start doing that. So I started, I thought, well, I'll do it, take on a gnome day plume and just do it on the internet and have a secret studio. And then I thought, oh, forget it. I'm not going to do that. So 
I went into school literally like the next week, showed a picture of that dog painting and told all my students I was going to become a pet portrait artist and do these commissions. And I just sort of laid it all out and I started doing it. And my students thought I was nuts. One of them called me a traitor. Um, I had colleagues from around the country say, you know, people thought I was crazy, that I would just kind of quit doing what I was doing to do these things. And I don't know why. I, other than that, I was just bored with what I was doing. I, I decided. I was finally just kind of bored with my work. And so I needed this kind of thing to just see what would happen. And so I started doing the commissions. And what I discovered with the commissions was that there was this really interesting relationship I developed between the person, the, the, the client and the work and my creation of the work that I kind of liked. This kind of like it's their dog and I have to kind of treat it like um, – like, um, with a different sort of, my own sort of thinking about it wasn't that important. You know, suddenly for me, the maker, I, I wasn't important anymore. It was more about what they wanted. And that was an, that was kind of a unique territory for me as a painter. And I kind of liked it. Um, because I was making this one painting for one person. And a lot of times they would start crying. They'd get the painting and they'd cry. Or they, you know, they just had this like incredible emotional reaction to the portrait, which I thought was really interesting too because nobody ever cried in my other work. And, and I know I was pushing all the buttons because it's their dog. It just died or whatever. And, you know, I mean, but still they cried. And it just seemed like a really important, powerful kind of thing. So I started, you know, doing commissions. And um, <clears throat> that what really the whole commission sequence for me was about was learning how to paint in a different way a way that i would never been taught to paint um a way that in a sense i've been teaching how to paint that way my entire career so i utilized a lot of my own knowledge gained from teaching to do these things but it was a it was foreign territory for me and very exciting and at some point i decided i needed to um expand my audience like the commissions were great it was like this one-on-one sort of thing my audience was one person which was interesting to me instead of group of anonymous people it was this one person but i decided i still had to make work for that larger group of people and but and so that's when i came up with the facebook group and i decided to start making large-scale paintings of the of the pets uh, dogs and cats so that's kind of the the story of it what makes it interesting to me is just that it's a, a very direct way of dealing with the viewer then right right well we're kind of taught in school who is your audience? You know, who's your viewers? Um, we tend for years. I sort of imagined my viewers being people in uh, New York City at a nice gallery, you know, and I imagine my paintings hanging up there in this nice gallery. And that was my audience. You know, well, that's bullshit. That's not going to happen. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it will, but it's not, you know, that's not my audience. It's Amy Silman's audience or it's, you know, an artist that lives in New York. That, that's their audience. Right. Because they live there. And so, um Granted, that may happen. Still, who knows? I'm not dead yet. Uh, but at the same time, I just decided I couldn't keep making work for some kind of fictional audience that no longer, um, you know, that no, you know, if I was doing this kind of the work I was doing before the pet paintings out here, say back in the '60s or '70s, maybe it would have had relevance. But I just decided that you know, it long ago had lost relevance. If right. that makes sense. Well, and it's interesting to me because. It brings up this idea of how there's a rela- there's a relationship between the way that you live and experience life and how that impacts your studio work and I think it's something that you don't really think about as much when you're you're in school. I think when you're out of school it's it's a bit different experience. I understand what you're saying totally. Um I don't I don't know if I have words exactly to to kind of say it any better or different than what you're saying, but I, I do think that part of um 
you know, my understanding with the change my work had to do with, you know, trying to make work that was more about my life. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it, it, and that kind of contradicts what I said before, I think there's still a component that has to do with getting my ego out of my work as well. So I, I think this newer work, there's very little of my ego in it. At least that's what I'm hoping, like the pet portraits and stuff. So, um, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. And I think maybe a good place to talk a little bit about your, your other baby, Raka? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, a co- this was a couple years ago, pretty much at the same time that I was going through this other shift with my painting. Um, I started, I was sitting around one night in the middle of a, a snowstorm here in Minnesota, drinking beer, and um, I just impulsively made a Facebook group called Rural America Contemporary Art. It just seemed like, like a crazy name of something. Um, it just, I don't know why I did it. It was totally impulsive. And I put it there, and pretty soon all these people were joining it. And everybody was like, what is this? What is this? And I was like, I don't know what this is. And so then a sort of thesis was born after a while um, with this thing called Rural American Contemporary Art. We called it, we now call it RACA. That's the acronym. Um, I did this, engaged in kind of a dialogue on Facebook with people from all over the country about it. And uh, then started thinking about what can I do with it? And it seemed like why just let it, it se- there seemed like a lot of energy behind it. And uh, so I decided to uh, try to produce a, uh, initially I just thought of a website. Um, and then I started thinking, well, I'm going to try to do a magazine with it. And so I enlisted a couple of my colleagues, David Rogers and Matt Williamson. They're part of, uh, uh, they have their own design company called WR uh, Design Lab. And they volunteered to work with me and create this magazine, website, um, blog, and online gallery. So the our digital Raka world is based of, on those things. So we have a gallery that's like a really um, – I've been wanting to change it a lot more, but you know how that goes. It's <laughs> kind of hard to change things, but um, – it's a beautiful site, so it's uh, Raka Online. That's the, the I think that's the the URL. But um, so we have a, a exhibition space. I blog once a week with it, and kind of like I blog about things that are related to life, uh, you know, an art life and rural place. And then we have the magazine, and the magazine comes out twice a year. We just had our first edition uh, about a month ago. It came out, and it features people writing about artists they're interested in. Uh, we have some prose, some poetry. So it's not just visual art, but it's you know the literary arts and stuff. So it's a whole bunch. And some of the, and the contributors to the first magazine, Gary Justice from down in uh, Illinois is in it, and um, uh, Deborah Monroe, she's a fiction writer down in Texas. Uh, she's one of the contributors. Rick Robbins is a poet friend of mine from this area. So it's people from all over the country. I aspire uh, it to be a national publication. So um, that's kind of part of the goal is to get draw from all over the place. But um, And the idea is to represent – my main theory with Rock is that, that rural America is a place that has an artistic identity and also an artistic population. There's people that live in rural – and I'm not talking – I'm talking about Bloomington Normal or I'm talking about um, Decatur, Illinois. I'm talking about uh, you know small-town America, even medium-sized city America, you know, basically – uh, not New York and not LA, everything in between is kind of Raqqa in my mind. And so, but if you think about it, there really isn't any kind of national publication that addresses what that is, the identity of American art that's non-urban um, or non-New York, non-LA, um, you know, who's making what, who's doing what, you know, I think that's kind of what we're going to try to do with Raqqa. So it's incredibly ambitious, I suppose, and probably slightly crazy, but um, that's what I've been up to. Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about it all is just the way that it, it allows, you know, different artists from all over 
to interact with each other in a way that they haven't really been able to as easily before. And, you know, all of that social media, all the technology is something that gets incorporated into that. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. Right. Yeah, I think that it initiates, it encourages a dialogue with people, um, between people. I think it's, uh, and, and we can only do this because of this technology. You know, I mean, it's not... You know, if you think about a traditional art magazine like Art Forum or, or whatever, um, they exist in New York because that's where the money is to support that kind of thing. The galleries advertise. The, you know, there's a system in place that reinforces that. And it also reinforces the idea of New York as an art center. I mean, that's – and it is an art center. I'm not denying that, and I love New York. But I also think the way the art world has become, it's – you know, you've got – you know, to use an overused uh, sort of uh, example, um, you've got the 1% of the artists are making 1% of the art for that 1% of the population, the extremely wealthy. And then the rest of us, uh, I could conceivably consider Raqqa. I mean, people like you and me, they're just out working. Um, people at universities all over the country, they're actually making very um, important work. But it, you know, it exists. It doesn't exist in one of the art centers, and I think that's a. I think that that in itself is an amazing thing that nobody's really paying much attention to yet. And, they th- and that's what I'd like to try to do with Rock is try to bring more, you know, attention to that sort of uh, art world that we have. And if anyway, it may, if anything, it may contribute a sense of authenticity to that urban art world that exists in the one percent. You know, I don't know. It's just a stupid theory. Maybe it's all junk out here. I hope not. I mean, right in my own little backyard here in southern Minnesota, there's some incredible artists like Liz Miller, uh, Gregory Euclid, David Hamill, some the people that were in the first online exhibition. I mean, these are incredible artists. They're doing some great stuff. And I can't imagine we're the only place in this country where that exists. It's everywhere, right? Right. But nobody's, you know, doing anything. Uh, you and I are. But I think that's the thing that makes it so exciting. And, you know, for me, it seems like such an interesting way to bring up just a a new format, a new way of interacting, a new way of, of highlighting all these things. You know, you could come across someone that, you know, is uh, making things with, with clay in, in some barn or, right. you know, right. or, or some basement or, you know, some apartment. Who knows? Yeah, I think there's an aesthetic out here. I mean, I think if anything, there there it's 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 kind of what I happened what happened in my own work. It's It's no longer, you know, I'm no longer comparing myself to, say, New York art. You know, I'm not like part of that dialogue in my mind anyway. And so I'm, I think I'm saying, you know, with Raqqa that, um, you know, it's time to take ownership of the art world we've created here, you know, in terms of the rest of the country. And we don't necessarily have to be holding to um, New York or be beholden to crummy art. I think there's, again, it's not like, you know, we're all doing paintings on saws or we're doing, you know, barn siding art, or even though that could be good stuff. I'm not saying it's not, but, you know, and, and perhaps, just perhaps there's an aesthetic out here, uh, a way of looking at the world that can, uh, you know, change the existing art world to the better. You know, that idea of authenticity you were talking about or the idea of um, um, just, I like to think of it as, I think people that work, um outside of places like New York, view the world in a much broader way. You know, the horizon line is different. The edges of things are different. And so they make work that's, that reflects that. And I think in terms of a, a way of thinking, the world needs that. Sure. So that makes any sense. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. So that's what we're trying to do with Raqqa. But we'll see. You know, we're working for free. We're not making any money. And, you know, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> well, well, so um, I know that you've got a number of things going on there. So is, is there anything that you'd like to kind of share with uh, 
our audience to, to kind of let let them know what to look out for, some some plans or anything that that's coming up to look out for. Well, we have the juried show. The thing with Raka, we're we're trying to um, uh, Raka just isn't a virtual thing. We're doing. Um, we we had a curated show last year at an art center here in Minnesota. We have another one coming up um, in another uh, art center, and I'm in negotiation with the up in the cities. So we're doing exhibitions as well uh, of artists. And then we have a national juried show that's on Facebook right now. And I don't know if um, maybe we can put a link on your your uh, your site or I don't know. But if people are on Facebook, they can look for it. Um, but a uh, uh, juried exhibition is coming up. I think the deadline's February first. Though maybe you're the dead, you won't get this out by then. If you don't, that's okay. I'll be good. Okay. So that's that's coming up. I have a, a show of my own work coming up March 9th. Opens up at a traffic zone, a gallery up in Minneapolis of just my large scale pet paintings. I'm pretty excited about that. And what else? I think at the moment that's all oh, we're doing a conference in uh, the summer and stuff. But excellent, excellent. So it sounds like a lot of a lot of things in the works. At yeah, the yeah, yeah. It's been it's just it's been wonderful. You know, it's really a lot of fun, and uh, it's great meeting people and connecting with people about this. So and it you know the the idea of Rural art, rural contemporary art is, uh, you know, even putting those words together sounds weird, you know, rural and contemporary. And I think that in itself is kind of a profound thing. When people hear that, they go, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, we don't often think of, the, of contemporary existing in places like this, but it does. So I think that's an important realization. Sure. Well, um, thanks again for spending the, uh, the time to talk with us today. My pleasure, David. It's just wonderful. And it's wonderful what you're doing here, too, with these podcasts. I think it's great. So thank you. All right. Thanks again to Brian for joining us. And once again, you can find him a number of places. We'll start off first with his website, poorfarmart.com. Again, that's poorfarmart, and you can see all of his work there. Of course, if you want to find out more information about Raqqa or Rural America Contemporary Art, you can check out that link on this very blog page, but that's R-O-C-A-R-T dot org, so please go ahead and check that out. And if you'd like more information on that Raqqa juried exhibition, it's right there, so please visit their website. Lastly, if you're interested, you can become a part of Brian's group on Facebook. I love your cat. I love your dog. So please go ahead and check that out there. Since you're checking out all of these sites already, you might as well visit my website and see what I do and learn a little bit more about your host. Again, my name is Dave Linaway, and you can follow that link on the left side of the sidebar on Studio Break. Again, my work deals with abstraction, landscape, and architecture, so please go ahead and visit my site. Our music today is found at freemusicarchive.org. Again, they've got thousands of songs that you can download for free, full albums, so please go ahead and check it out. Again, it's a great place to get new music. And our opening song today was C. Scott Detriment, and taking us out is Nikki Cook Facebook. Once again, if you enjoyed your program today, we highly encourage you to share it with other folks. Please share those links, email it to a friend, whatever. It's, again, a great way to pass the time while you're working on something in the studio or if you've got a commute. Of course, there's a number of ways to reach out to Studio Break, so we'll go through them real quick. Again, you can find us 
in iTunes. Just search for Studio Break under podcasts and subscribe there. Once again, thanks for all of the feedback that people have been leaving. It's been really great and very appreciated. So please go ahead and continue to do that if you enjoy the program. Once again, we have a ton of other artists at studiobreak.com. So please go ahead and check out their interviews and share that information. If you're on Facebook, you can check out our Facebook page. Again, we provide a previews of upcoming artists, updates from past guests, and show announcements. So please like us there. Again, it's a great way to stay in tune with what's going on. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break on Twitter. So please go ahead and do that. Reach out and say hello. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll talk to you real soon. Oh